The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. Uh, well, welcome. If you are new with us or visiting, we have been going through a, a book of the Bible that is 2 Timothy. It's a letter. Uh, you can turn there as we'll, we'll read a passage in just a moment. Um, it's a letter that uh, an older pastor, uh, a seasoned pastor, it's actually a pastor who has come to the end of his ministry because his execution is is impending, and he knows it. He knows that his life is almost over. He's going to be killed uh, for his work in the gospel. He's been in prison right now in Rome, and this will be the last letter that he gets to write to his friend and protege, a young pastor, uh, Timothy, who's in his late 20s probably at this time. And really the theme of this letter is all about guarding the gospel, enduring suffering for the sake of the gospel, for not swerving or swaying from the truth, but guarding it no matter what might happen in his life. So it's a letter from a pastor to another pastor about how to be faithful in the calling that God has placed on his life. But the application is much broader than just pastor to pastor. It's one for the whole church because this letter was written to Timothy, but it was meant to be read by the congregation. And so as we read this letter from a pastor to a pastor, we read it for you as well and for your benefit. Second Timothy I'll be reading in chapter 2, starting in verse 14. Remind them of these things and charge them before God, not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing the seal. The Lord knows who are His. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. An important passage for all of us this morning. You know, there are so many popular uh, books out there that discuss how entertainment and media and technology has warped our perception of reality and even warped our perception of truth and morality and how we engage in the world around us. One of these books is a book by Neil Postman called Amusing Ourselves to Death, Public Discourse in the Age of Show Business. Maybe you're familiar with this. And here's a quote that he says from his book. He says, When cultural life is redefined as a perpetual round of entertainments, when serious public conversation becomes a form of baby talk, when in short a people become an audience, then a nation finds itself at risk. Culture death is a clear possibility. And what he's saying is this, it's possible to have a lot to talk about, 
to be inundated with things to talk about and stories and news events and all kinds of topics and to have a lot of information about a lot of things but never be moved to any kind of meaningful action in any of those. How many times throughout your day have you said to somebody, hey, did you hear? Dot, dot, dot. How many times has someone come up to you throughout the day and say, hey, did you hear about dot, dot, dot? And then they would tell you a story that they saw on Twitter, or they told you a story that someone has uh, told them about, or they, they saw on the news, or read in a paper. Some people still do that. A person, a, a news event, a news story. Now think about how many times that someone has come up to you and said, hey, have you heard about this event that has happened? And then that changed your life. It made you adjust your thinking. It made you adjust your behavior. It adjusted your attitudes and perspective because of what you heard. Maybe extremely rare, maybe never. How many times have you heard a story or watched a news story, even if it was tragic, even if it was horrible, and said, oh, well, that's unfortunate. Click, back on with my life. There's something about just so much news and hearing so many things that if we're not moved to any kind of action, it's a very bad thing. And what entertainment culture does to us is that it causes us to argue morality not on a basis of substance, but we, we argue on the basis of good looks and usefulness and even how it makes us feel. And it warps our ability to argue for truth and to know truth and to be moved towards right action and living, even justice. And it's a reason that if we saw two men in a parking lot, for instance, after church, you're going to your car, and two men came out of CVS right in the middle of the parking lot, and they just had an all-out brawl. I mean, a fist fight, very aggressive. There's two big men and strong, and they are just beating each other up. They're breaking each other's faces. There's blood that's coming down. You would feel terrified, most likely. You would feel discouraged. You would feel very frazzled, and maybe even you'd be even physically shaking, and you would probably call for help. You'd get help. You would avoid going close. It is the reason we would see that and be disgusted by it and pained by it and feel sorrow over it, but entertainment then, if we call it like UFC or have an arena and sell tickets for it, then it's fun, then it's good, and we see people all bloodied up and we say, who, who won? Because if it's entertainment, then it's, it's not real life. It's okay to do that. And this kind of amusement will not be contained in the secular world, but it will creep into the church, as Paul tells Timothy, and it will form the way that we approach God and approach the world around us. And this letter that Paul writes to Timothy, this young pastor, was written before the internet. It was written before the 24-hour news cycle. It was written before Facebook and Twitter feeds. It was written before the comment section on blogs. And yet he is faced with this all-too-familiar challenge. Speak truth. Speak truth in an age of entertainment in an age of false teaching, in an age of consumerism, and, and trading things of real substance for things that entertain and to make us feel better. And now what Paul wants Timothy to know is how he must guard the gospel and his own life and how to answer his critics and how to engage with God's word and the people around him in a faithful way and correcting people who are leading people away from the church that are distracting them with just myths and, and entertainment and controversies and all the while, they're being led away from the real truth. And he, will by, and he will do this by preparing himself in a serious state of intellectual 
and emotional readiness. Be intellectually ready, Timothy. Be emotionally ready. Handle the Word of God carefully. I want you to know this is for you. This isn't just for me. It's not just for pastors and teachers of God's Word. It is for you. And even if you're not like Timothy, let's say that you're not a, you're not a pastor, you're not in your late 20s, you're not a man, this is still for you for a few reasons. One, it'll help you know what kind of pastor you should listen to. And I understand this puts me in a vulnerable state today. But it'll encourage you. What kind of pastor should you follow? What kind of teacher should you listen to and give your attention to? It will encourage you to be more faithfully uh, able to handle God's word of truth in your own life, even if it leads to great sacrifice and pain and suffering in your own life. It'll prepare you to handle well God's word. And it will be for you an anchor for your identity. No matter what is happening in your life, it'll be an anchor so that you are not swayed by your emotions like, like the waves of the sea. So you're not tossed from one direction to another. Every time something happens in the world, you are not thrown out of keel. But it's an anchor. It keeps you anchored and steadfast, and you know where your hope lies. The main instruction for Timothy is here in verse 15. It says, do your best, Timothy, do your best, to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. If you joined us last week, we saw these three metaphors, one of an athlete and a soldier and a farmer. And here he continues with this theme and this metaphor of, of be like a good worker that presents your work to, to God who is one who's going to check your work. Hand in your homework assignment. And the teacher is there watching over it and grading it as you're standing there. Your work will be... Revealed when the sun comes up, you don't want to be ashamed of what it looks like. Timothy is to prepare himself in all seriousness to be found as a faithful and genuine pastor. And his genuineness as a pastor is going to be defined in the criteria is on two characteristics, his teaching and his conduct. This will be the criteria that God uses to weigh if Timothy is being a faithful pastor. And it is the criteria that God will use to weigh if you and I are followers who are faithful to Jesus, in our teaching, in our, in our beliefs, in our conduct. And so what does he say about his teaching? He says to rightly handle, rightly handle the word of truth. There are some times I wish that I could make up the content of my teaching. Because on a given Sunday, when we come to a text, I wish I can say everything, anything but what is in God's word. Because I know it might, frankly, be inconvenient for me, it is inconvenient for you, at times, when people ask me, does God really believe this? Does the Bible really say this? There's something interesting that happens. I'm tempted to say whatever you want to hear. Whatever you want to hear that will not push you away. Whatever you want to hear that will, that will make you still my friend. That will make you feel encouraged and excited about following Jesus. And there is this little gap that exists between the question and the answer. Whenever a question is asked of me, whenever somebody comes up to me and asks me a difficult question about God, there's this space in between the finish, when they finish their question and then, the, and then the time I begin to talk. And it may be like two or three or four seconds, and it feels like, feels like an hour. And it's in that moment where I'm deciding, is the next thing out of my mouth going to be true? Or is it just going to be what I want them to hear? 
And Paul is saying to Timothy, remind them of these things. Paul's telling Timothy, you don't need to come up with something new. You don't need to come up with a great new edgy theology. The old stuff is good stuff. Like the oldies are the goodies. And that's what Paul is saying. He said, you don't need to teach them something new and something hip and something revolutionary. Stick to what you have been taught. Stick to the clarity of the gospel and the truth of what Christ has done. And the pastor's job, no matter, no matter uh, what, is, is never to change people or to charge people with uh, personal opinions or personal stories, but with sound teaching from God's word. And to remind people over and over again of what Christ has done and who he is. So much of my job is, is not figuring out new things to do or how to be a, a different kind of pastor, but to remind you of what God has already done for you and for us in Jesus Christ. And there's an alternative, and Paul talks about this, these two people. The alternative is that there is a kind of teaching that distracts from faithful teaching of God's word. By controversies and side issues, Paul says, don't quarrel over these things. Don't quarrel over words. You know the feeling. You've been a part of these controversies. You've been in these conversations. You've entered into a spiritual conversation, and a minute into it, you thought you knew automatically that you wish it never started. And you're thinking, how do I get out of this? You became aware that there was, never, there was not going to be a winner in that conversation. Do you know those conversations? You immediately regret getting into it in the first place, and you and I have been guilty of this kind of dialogue where we just talk and we just trade back arguments. We go back and forth, and we know that no one is going to be convinced at the end of it. You've engaged in these side issues, and, and, and it's distracted for what is really true and what really needs to be aimed towards. This was written before the Internet. Again, I remind you. The internet does not create our temptation to comment on everything that is said. The internet didn't invent that. If you've ever pressed send and regretted it, if you have ever responded to an email out of anger and regretted it, if you have ever sent a negative tweet or interacted on a comment feed on a blog and regretted it, if you've ever responded to a viral Facebook post and you look, and there's like 2,000-plus comments, and you've thought to myself, I'm going to make the comment that ends all comments. I'm going to change their perspective and change the world. I have to give my opinion. How many times have you changed anyone's opinion because of that? Never. It will never happen. I, I don't use the word never often, but it will never happen. You will never change anyone's perspective. You will never win them to Christ. And Paul says, actually, the opposite happens. You ruin them. You will not change their mind. There is no value to engage in those kinds of conversation. And it's obvious that this argument that is happening that will end in not people being won over, but people being further marginalized and further polarized and further convinced of their, of their position And worse, he says, they destroy those who are listening. So those who are watching and maybe watching how Christians engage in cultural issues and and quarreling about things and say, how is the church going to handle this? And people standing by and they hear the arguments, they get a sour taste in their mouth. And so whenever they hear about Christ or Christian or the gospel or scripture, they are turned off. They don't want to be a part of it. This is such a warning in our time when there is no shortage of words. There's no shortage of controversies and sides. There's no shortage of ideas or opinions. And I want to warn you, as as Paul instructs Timothy, I want to warn you to not make minor controversies major issues, major battles 
for the faith, to not get caught up in a battle of words, but to handle your speech in such a way that God himself would be honored by it. Timothy's life and influence, influence rests on the fact that he takes God's word seriously, that he's careful to consider how an engagement in controversies and words and quarreling will detract and take away from the word of God, from people hearing the word of God. Aiming for God's approval for how to handle his word. That's what he should do. And when the sun comes up and reveals his work, he will be not ashamed by it. I visited a church recently that had, uh, behind the pulpit, they had a very large cross. It was a beautiful vaulted ceiling, and, and on the back wall, it was this huge, broad wall of 25 feet, probably. And behind the pulpit was this beautiful cross, and behind the cross was a beautiful uh, um, painting, a painting of an arch. And this beautiful painting of the arch was meant to create a distinction of the colors and so to draw your eyes to the cross. And so this whole wall was meant to focus your eyes on the cross and a great focal point in any church. And, but the arch was painted and the arch that was painted was not straight. And me, who is a, a really uh, OCD type person, um, you can tell that it was almost as if the person who was painting this was probably a very skilled painter as he was painting the arch behind this beautiful cross. He had a, a hiccup, and as he had a hiccup, he kind of tremored a little bit and said, oh, no one will notice, and so he finished the arch, and so instead of drawing the attention to this beautiful cross, which was meant to point us to Jesus, all I could think about was this crooked arch, and it ruined me, and I couldn't think about Jesus at all. Like the person who's painting this arch with a steady hand, who's meant to be a steady hand, Timothy says, you need to cut this kind of straight line. He says you need to handle it, rightly handling the word of truth. You need to uh, cut a straight path. You need to, and this is for your benefit and also for the benefit of your hearers. They need to know where you're going. They need to know what is straight and what is true. It is a call to accuracy and simplicity and, and humility of the teacher. It is a call to uh, not to impress people with fancy talk, but to handle God's word with clarity and accuracy and humility. It is a call to not take the handling of God's word uh, casually, as seeing it as, you know, I'm so glad we have the Bible. What great advice it is. What great news it is. But to, to not handle it with such casual nature, but actually doing the opposite, being serious about it, being careful about what it says, and testing our hearts in relation to God's Word so that we handle it well, so that anyone who might look at us and look at our teaching and look at our life, they may see this straight line of faithfulness to God that isn't confused, that isn't hypocritical, that isn't changed by our surroundings. Pastors and churches and followers of Jesus should care deeply about, the, about what the Bible says because it is God's criteria for determining our obedience to Him is a faithful dealing of His Word. It's possible in an attempt to draw people to the gospel that we actually do the opposite and we push people away from Christ. A Christian who quarrels about controversies and gets caught up in one conflict after another, Paul says, ruins 
their hearers. The Greek word for ruin is a, uh, a word that is pronounced catastrophe. I don't think I need to explain that anymore. They are laid in rubble. They are like an overturned city. They are like a town that has been bombed and is in rubble and the bricks are turned one over the other and it is a mess. Paul says if you quarrel about words and get distracted from the straight truth of the gospel, you will lay ruin your hearers. And there are two people who have done that, Hymenaeus and Philetus. How sad is it that you finally make it in the Bible and it's for the wrong reason? <laughs> Paul's talking about me. I made it in the Bible. Oh, no. Oh, no. You get your name in the Bible and it's only because you failed to advance the gospel and even worse, you failed to be approved by God and you ruined your hearers. Hymenaeus and Philetus are two teachers who are teaching a teaching that's, that, that's swerved from the truth and, and instead of being like a sort of life-giving balm and truth and teaching, it was gangrene. It was like gangrene. Is, gangrene is bad. It's disgusting. It's putrid. It's, you have to wear a mask. They, they, they quarantine people in the hospital with gangrene because it is so destructive. It ruins a person's body. It's, it's disgusting and horrible. You don't mess around with gangrene. It's the, the only thing that they accomplished was to lead people away and to harm their faith and to destroy the truth to, and, and to destroy it for themselves and also for their hearers. They taught specifically that the resurrection had already happened. This was the controversy. This was the heresy. Paul's teaching of the resurrection was central to his theology. The bodily resurrection of, of, of the person, the believer, is tied to the bodily resurrection uh, to Jesus. And if Jesus isn't raised, then we are not raised. And if Jesus is not raised, then the best that we have to look forward to is life right now. And the sin is not conquered and death is not defeated and so our hope in all of life is really to live the best life right now and to make sure that we are most comfortable in this life right now if the resurrection already happened then you and i should be very concerned with our comfort and our well-being in this life as christians you see how this goes against everything that paul's been saying up to this point when he says endure suffering for the sake of the gospel the danger is this, is that it takes the focus off of God's promise and it puts the focus for your life on your experience. How are you doing? Are you happy? If you're not happy, maybe God doesn't love you. Maybe you don't have enough faith. Are you happy? Well, then, then you're probably really good. You probably please God in your life. So keep doing what you're doing. You see, if the resurrection has happened, then we are going to judge our life by our circumstances, by how we feel, by how hard things are. If Christ is not alive today, bodily, then your suffering is useless. Then your struggle is useless. Then discomfort should be avoided. But if Christ is alive, then suffering and even death is powerless. Then there becomes a different indicator of faithfulness to God. There becomes a different hope that we set our eyes on. And it isn't discomfort, but it is being faithful to His Word. You know, every politician, yes, this is where I'm going, has a vision for why their viewpoint will bring you ultimate happiness and prosperity today. 
And so your job is really to decide <clears throat> which candidate <clears throat> will make me the happiest, which one will bring me the most comfort. And each is trying to win over voters by convincing us that the resurrection hasn't happened and that what happens in this life is the most important thing. Are you uncomfortable? I'll make you comfortable. Are you sad? I'll make you happy. Are you needy? I'll give you what you need. Are you disappointed? Well, I'll change things so that you're no longer disappointed. And what it does is it puts our focus on the circumstances our, on our life and to compromise the word of God. The gospel tells us that resurrection has yet to happen, that our hope is not in this life. And therefore, our greatest comfort is not found in what happens to us today. And then we are willing then to suffer and to endure the suffering for the sake of the gospel that God brings to us because of obedience to Him. And so our primary concern is faithfulness to God, not living a happy and good life. When we are eating, uh, at least in our house, and hopefully in your house too, there's a quality uh, to every utensil and every serving dish and a pitcher that is far above every other quality when we are considering what to use. And you know what that quality is? Is it clean? <laughs> is it clean? Something becomes useful not because it has been polished, not because uh, it is the right size bowl for a salad, not because it has the right kind of handle. Uh, it pla- there's a place uh, of quality on this uh, utensil uh, that is far above any other and that it is clean. And Paul uses this analogy, a metaphor of household items. As he talks about Timothy, he gives him so many instructions and then he gives him this metaphor for what he should focus on as it relates to his teaching and to his conduct. And he tells this story, he says there's a great house, there's, there's not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. You see, it doesn't matter if something is gold and shiny and silver. It matters if it's, if it's clean. The metaphor doesn't put an importance on the value of it because it is gold or silver. And likewise, it doesn't demean an item because it's made of clay or wood or some very common uh, material. It places a quality on an item because it is clean and therefore becomes useful to God. And we are meant to carry out this metaphor, and I encourage you, to carry out this metaphor that Paul gives to Timothy, that righteous beliefs and righteous speech with empty character and integrity is nothing. It breeds chaos. That believing something true and having an empty and and vacant character is nothing. To use Paul's analogy, if you've mastered your theology, but your character and your good deeds are sinful, then you're useless to the master of the house. And so he says, so, so run away from, run away from the desires of your youth. Run away from youthful passions. Get far away from it as possible, but have faith and love and peace along with all of those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Do not watch only your teaching, but he says, walk the walk. Don't just talk the talk. Don't just say, yes, I believe the Bible, and yet fail to find your confidence and the conduct of your life that flows from it. You don't have to fight to get the last word. You don't have to fight for your word to be the last. You can be kind. You can be loving. You can be patient with those who oppose you. But young men, and I imagine even older men and and older women and younger women, this is hard to do. 
That when someone opposes you and someone says something that really gets you going and boils your blood, you have to say something, right? Because if you don't say something, they won't change. I mean, who's going to teach them? How will they learn? We want our voice to be the final voice. We need to set the record straight. It's hard to walk away from an argument, isn't it? Have you ever wondered why it's so hard to walk away from an argument when someone says something that's not true you disagree with? Why you feel like you have to get the last word? I'll tell you why. Here's my thought. Here's my theory of why I think it is so hard to walk away from an argument. Um, Because you want to be God. Isn't that a little over the top? No, it's not. I'll tell you why. You want to change their mind. You want to change their heart. You want to bring about repentance and purity of thought. You want to bring about righteous living. You want, to come to the, you want them to come to their senses. You want them to escape the snares of, of, of foolishness and the snares of the devil. You want to rescue them. You want to save them. You want to be their savior. You want to be their God, and you're not, and that frustrates you. Because if you don't change them, then no one will. Do you see that? Do you see that? Our, 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 our need to change people and to correct people and get the last word really stems from a need to be the salvation for others, to be God. And the temptation for Timothy as a young man is to always go negative, to go negative when conflict and suffering comes into his life, when there is opposition, when people say things and and get caught up in words and controversy. The temptation for Timothy is to go negative, to attack, to correct, and it comes no shock to you, I don't think. It's not a big news flash. We, we go negative all the time, and Paul understands it, and Timothy understands it. But there is a God, and it's not you. And this is where Timothy, or Paul, kind of concludes this and lands the plane, and here's where, where I'm going to do the same. That we can resist quarreling. We can resist quarreling about words because our confidence is not ultimately in politics. It's not ultimately in judges. It's not ultimately in the economy. It's in God. God says here, uh, Paul tells us that God's firm foundation stands. He knows who are His. He is in control. We don't have an absentee landlord. We don't have a powerless God over us, but a king who never changes, who rules with love and justice. And so we keep watch over our teaching and our doctrine We rightly divide the word of truth. We keep watch over our conduct, that we are kind, that we are patient with those who oppose us. We speak to others with love and with faith and with kindness in order to win them over, in order to lead to repentance. And this is Paul's bottom line. The bottom line for Paul, the key to everything, is that God grants repentance that leads to life. When we understand verse 24 to 26 rightly, that it is God that leads to repentance and not us. We will take a pause. See, this is what I think that Paul is teaching Timothy as he's telling them, he's, in, he's instructing him all these things, all the things to do and all the things not to do and, and all the things to remember and the metaphor of like cleansing his own life and keeping watch over his conduct to be useful to God telling him to flee from youthful passions. And he says, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. We take a break from thinking about all the people that we want to change. Because maybe up to this point, is if you read this passage and if you were doing your own personal quiet time, you would probably 
list in your head all the people that this is talking about that really need to change and that need to be swerved, that need to come back to the truth and that need to rightly divide. And you, you know, you, all these people, you probably already thought today, all the people that are really dramatic. Oh, I totally know someone who, who, who quarrels about words. I know somebody who writes all comments on Facebook. I know someone who posts stuff on Facebook all the time and it never works. I know people like that. Paul wants us to pause and he wants to take a break of thinking about all the people that need to repent for knowledge of the truth and thinking about all that is wrong in the world and all that frustrates us and all the people in our life who uh, just won't change and we, and we will see the good work that God does in people and foremost in us. That God grants repentance that leads to knowledge of the truth. And so that means there was a time where you didn't know the truth and you needed God to tell you the truth. So whatever you think is right right now, and there might be an arrogance or a self-righteousness about what is right, God wants you to realize that that was a gift from him to you, and there was a time that you did not have that. It's God's work that opens our minds to understand his hearts, uh, our hearts to feel and our will to obey. It's an act of God alone that we were once convinced, in, uh, that has once convinced us of our need for him and to lead us to genuine faith in the truth of the gospel, that Jesus died to rescue sinners from the snare of the devil from which we were once held captive. Jesus patiently endured evil to give us life. Those who believe this should be the most patient people in the world. Those who believe that God grants us repentance that leads to knowledge of the truth, that leads to salvation, should be the most humble and patient and kind and joyful people on the planet. We should be the most enduring when we are accused. We should be the most enduring when we are opposed because of what Jesus has done for us, that he's opened our hearts to know. And so we seek to conduct our lives in such a way that is winsome to others, that does not get tied up in controversies, that, that, that keeps our head and our heart in the word of God. And says, you know, the world is talking about all these things and fighting about all these things. I want to know what God has said to me so that I can believe what is true. Because he is my hope. He gives me life. Can you do this? You have ample opportunity to do that this week. To not engage in controversies and quarrel about words. But to rightly divide the word of truth. And to not uh, put your hope and to live your life based on what is most comfortable for you. But to trust in Jesus and to trust in King Jesus that his plans are firm, his foundation stands. And the worst thing to do is not to make the wrong choice uh, that will destroy your life. The worst thing to do is to abandon a faithfulness to God and his word. Let that cleanse you. Let that purify you. Let that change the conduct of your life. Let that go into your world with patience and kindness and faith and love for all around you. Let's pray together.